0: Welcome, I'm Dr. Robert Groves, your host for the Groves Connection podcast. The Groves Connection brings you intimate conversations with pundits, providers, patients, leaders, and laypeople, all to help us understand a contradiction. How can our healthcare system be both magnificent and yet so deeply flawed? We're going inside healthcare to talk candidly with those who know. What they have to say may delight, surprise, frustrate, or at times even anger you. But I invite you to get curious and listen to the truth about healthcare and those who want to fix it. Maybe the answers have been there all along. We just need to make the connection. Are you ready to connect? Sherry Duville, welcome to the Groves Connection. I'm so honored to be here. Thank you, Dr. Groves. I'm fascinated to get into this discussion, and uh, but as you know, I start way back. And so uh, the first thing I'd, I'd like to ask is, uh, go take it back to, to grade school. Where'd you grow up? What was life like then? What were you thinking? Uh, what kind of kid were you? Just start there, and let's move out from there.
1: Yeah, th- thank you so much. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so much can tie to my childhood. I'm uh, very, very fortunate, and and had a lot of interesting experiences that that have driven me, you know, to healthcare technology. But I was actually adopted as a homeless orphan in, in South Korea to um, American, uh, Caucasian American family. I'm here in the Bay Area, and my, my father um, was a, a you know senior manager at Hewlett Packard, you know for a long time. So you know, lo- long way to go from being you know homeless orphan in Asia to be adopted in, you know, Valley. <laughs> right. Yeah.
0: I did. And what age were you when you found out that you were adopted, and what your background was? Do you remember? Well,
1: it's pretty obvious because I look like this. And my <laughs> my my parents were blonde and, and redheaded, so I always knew that that, mm-hmm. that I looked different. But that was uh, uh, you know very very fortunate um, to be adopted. And It sounds like a dream come true and in so many ways that it, it is. But it wasn't without challenges. And we we did have um, my mom. I grew up with her being disabled, and kind mm. of um, experiences observing the healthcare system and a lot of responsibility. You know, starting probably like nine. Um, yeah. and, and accelerating, you know, through that she had had several um surgeries to company um something that she was she was born actually without a slip disc in her back and something that proceeded to accelerate in its degradation as she um entered I mean, even young middle age so something yeah, to, yeah. don't start to experience until their 80s or 90s is something that she started. Experience of her 30s, so it was really just made Here. a profound impression on me, and I always um, imprinted, uh, you know, just a passion for
0: healthcare. Yeah, so you you come by it uh, through through family events, This is so often the case. I hear that a lot that a family member goes through something, or the individual themselves uh, goes through something, and then they uh, they get a uh, they get the bug. You know, how do we how do we make it better? How do we I want to help people too. That kind of thing is that uh, sort of the experience. Absolutely,
1: and so I'm still trying to solve. You know, the same problem I saw. Then we spent so much time waiting. Yeah. Because different types of clinicians needed to to work on our case and provide information before different kinds of decisions could be made. A treatment decision, surgical decision, and and so um, the, just the agony of that as a family member. Um, was something that, that you know, came flooding back to me when I encountered um, this opportunity as, as a way to really um, impact that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Did you have siblings at this time that were part of that as well? Yeah, uh, two, two, two older
1: brothers we were all adopted, so my parents weren't, they weren't able to have kids. So, interestingly, um, part of what made me who I am is that I, I have one brother who's adopted, um, you know, from here domestically, and then two of us you know, from Asia, so I, I had the interesting experience of being mm-hmm. part of a, a very in, you know, interracial family, and, and there's a lot that goes with that. Probably, right too much for this podcast, but, but yeah,
0: yeah, probably.
1: I was um, a, what would be considered a scholar athlete, so I took a lot of um, honors type classes, and played a lot of sports. That was really the culture of the area uh, that I grew up in. So did um, track soccer uh, music and, and ended up growing in college. Um, but the thing that was, um, interesting about me because I, I always worked ever since I could, um, like starting at the age of 12 is that I never really had one click. So I did have, um, some best friends, um, that I still, some of them stay in touch with to this day, but I was, um, sort of a bridge to many clicks.
0: That's what it feels like. When I look at, uh, your activity and, and you're a connector, you know, you, you, you bring people together and create those bridges of opportunity. Uh, uh, what a great place to be.
1: Yeah. Thank you. I feel like there is a need for someone like me, you know, at this time in, in healthcare. So I'm, I'm very, um, you know, I'm very um, energized and inspired by that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, so, uh, were you a science kid? Was that something that was, yeah,
1: um, yeah. yeah. I, I, um, always uh, loved science and my dad used to bring home said so he, he was a finance guy but they were a very heavy tech company and he'd always bring home crystals uh, from the engineers you know that they use and some of their um you know devices and things and yeah. he said yes now this engineer would needed money for a project <laughs> yeah. so we had a collection of these crystals you know, and calculators. And so we always had a lot of um, those kinds of um, gadgets. Yes. And, and yeah. but yeah, my dad, I guess you could say he was super nerdy. And one of his our pastimes were, was reading encyclopedias together. And so when I when I in school,
0: uh, <laughs> that, that that's is. about as nerdy as it gets, I think, Sherry. But <laughs> but I, I I know what that's. I mean, I understand that. That was always one of my favorite go to places. And you know, just grab an encyclopedia and start anywhere. It's fascinating. Yeah, exactly.
1: Stuff. I, I think one of my um, defining moments is I, I I really admired and and was very fond of a chemistry teacher that I had in fifth grade, and she she was amazing. She she was very athletic. She swam every day. She was very tall, very striking, very confident woman. And um, Ms. Maunder took me by the shoulders and she said, you know, you're outstanding in science. And I, I said, okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she said, well, I just want you to think about sticking with it. And, and it, was, it was interesting. I didn't think anything of it that day. But I do always use, sort of, you know, remember it because it was always part of my continue to be part of my identity still to this day. You know,
0: yeah, a yeah.
1: science background, yeah.
0: All the conversations I've had, Sherry, uh, mentors come up every time. There's always yeah. somebody along the way that uh, was the guide star or, or uh, you know, helping direct along the path, encouragement. You know, some sort of mentorship is always part of the story in one way or another. And it could be, you know, it could be parents, it could be teachers, it could be all of the above, but there's always something back there. I think it's good to recognize that, uh, you know, whether you know it or not, uh, you're serving as a mentor to somebody. Now, you may not even know who they are. Uh, but it's always good to remember that.
1: Robert, I am incredibly ambitious. So first I'll say I have many, many mentors. I have a whole um, hey. one for enterprise uh, technology, uh, one for boards, one for fi- corporate finance, and lots of physicians. So many, many, many of them, but I'm incredibly ambitious. And my uh, one of my overarching goals is 50 general managers by my 50th birthday as one of my Dude. best friends. Oh. So, well, you're way beyond that. And I said, yeah, I think I am, <laughs> but but it just, <laughs> it got me very focused, you know, and it also buffers me from a lot of ups and downs that you can have. And in, yeah, in terms of leading a, a healthcare IT the early stage company, you know, if you have some kind of a north star, it's very helpful.
0: Yeah, yeah, that absolutely. So, um, you know, one one of the things that strikes me is if I picked up a dictionary and looked up the word overachiever, your picture would probably be there. <laughs> Uh, you sound like you're the consummate overachiever. like uh, it's never enough. You need uh, uh, that next level. is that does that is there a drive there that that is just intrinsic to you or how did you develop that?
1: You know it's interesting, that, well, i, I think I mentioned that um having uh, my mother was um disabled, and that was very um honestly challenging, you know, for our family on multiple levels., yeah. and so I think I learned very early that if i I needed, to do something, I needed to buy a car, I needed to solve a problem. Like I was a, the type of person who could just call my parents to solve a problem because they, they kind of yeah. had enough problems to deal with. <laughs>
0: yeah, um, and
1: I never really think of myself as an overachiever. Um, I think of myself as a designer and like a, like a reconstructor. And, and so the, the way that I think about the work and I do do a lot of things. I was just, um, I'm part of a, a CEO, um, Working group uh, where we get together and share challenges and help each other, and and one of the things we were talking about because we all uh, converge on life sciences, healthcare, and technology is that there's so many stakeholders involved. How do you build mm-hmm. credibility and bridges with all these different constituents? Because you yeah. have clients, you have physicians, and then you have investors. These are all different silos of different communities, and and just that. So so everything that I've been working on is it's not so much like overachieving to have you know different stars but it's more like i have a vision for how this problem so the problem we're solving at metagram is that a leading cause of vegetable death is still delayed information yeah but what that means to someone like my husband who's a strep neurologist is that he just simply doesn't get the information that he needs when he needs it and and when you peel back the onion of the problem what it, what it amounts to is the fact that there's all these different disciplines that have to be solved. You have to solve the IT portion, you've got to solve the engineering piece of why most software doesn't work on his phone, most of the time, and then you have to solve the technology integration, which is a people process as well as a technology problem. And, and when it comes to solving problems, you're really talking about communities. And so it's yeah. not so much trying to amass these gold stars, but it's just that you do have to have credibility of the different communities in order to be able to get people to work with you to solve problems. So, yeah. so that's kind of, because um, I don't have any advanced degrees. I don't know if you noticed that. Not. I'm probably your only guest that doesn't have a lot of advanced degrees because I'm very like autodidactic, uh, but, uh, but it's all um, from a deep, you know, but, problem solution mentality,
0: I think. So So walk us through the, the decision-making process, but because one of the things that, you uh, uh, my son has has talked to me about is that that higher education is less and less useful over time. You know, I push back a little bit because the college experience for me it's where I made some of my best friends and maybe as a social uh, engagement tool, uh, it was really important to me. Did, did you uh, uh, attend college then, or did you did you get a BS degree?
1: I, I went to Santa Clara University. It's an uh, oldest uh, higher ed institution in California jesuit uh, catholic and I, yeah, I believe in in its method it's about educating the whole person i um, so very centered on personal values living them our personal values right. are confidence conscientiousness and compassion and and in addition to being very rigorous academically and and so i think another one i mentors was actually i had the chair of the physics department and yeah. i was one of few women at the time um, doing a um, you know, BS degree and, and he, he was great. He understood me really well. He um, encouraged me, um, but never discouraged me. But, you know, when I told them that I just didn't feel that I had the, the personality or and, and wa- watching people like you and, and my husband and my friends that are physicians, that really don't have your disposition to do what you do. I'm grateful hmm. for me doing what I do you know, I had decided not to pursue medicine. And when he, when he and I sat down and talked about my education pathway, he he really stretched me to the max because he he I, I had the max on the load every quarter and it was very, um, both in broad and very deep and very intense. So I, you know, all the physics, all the organic chemistry, a lot of um, advanced math, and then things like psychology and sociology and economics. And yeah. he just... Knew that I would be able to do something um, really important where you're applying STEM knowledge. He didn't know exactly what it was, <laughs> but that, yeah, yeah. So I wouldn't be able to do anything I'm doing, you know, without that foundation. And and now I actually one of the things I do is teach. I'm a professor of practice for board governance, and I co-founded the curriculum for AI and cybersecurity for corporate board members. And that I well, think that the idea of universities is evolving um and i so i i like you do believe everybody that can afford to should for the social and foundational intellectual experience i i do believe in college but i don't it doesn't have the same value proposition that it used to have probably between you and your son in terms of my perspective so if you can afford it definitely do it if you can afford it i think there is a place for lots of different educational pathways. Like our our county, so I live in Northern California, Santa Clara County. I know a lot of policymakers are really looking at junior college to help because we need a lot of people on healthcare, not just doctors and nurses. So we need lots of different types of techs, both on clinical side as well as on the IT side. And a lot of these folks can and should be able to be funneled through pathways that don't necessarily Involve college if they can't afford college, or if college isn't for them.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And I've had lots of different, uh, you know, faculty and and senior administration at various universities ask me about interest in you know joining this program or getting that PhD and i'm like look there's really no advanced degree that matches what i think needs to be done in this market yeah. but i'll
0: help you build that's interesting so unpack that for us a little bit when you when you make that statement there there's no advanced degree that addresses what i want to do in this market what what is that and and help us understand what that means
1: i believe technology can have a profound impact on healthcare I, I'm not afraid of the challenge, uh, but i I respect the problem. I think the problem is much bigger and deeper than most people are willing to 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 imagine that I'm about facts. So I'm like let's let's accept facts and then solve and tackle for facts. I have a hobby of terrorizing uh, administration of faculty. And when I went to terrorize some some of them, uh, you know a couple years ago, I wanted to know when I looked at the engineering curriculum, I wanted to know why it was so narrow. Why? Because engineers, they can't really be useful unless they can apply that engineering knowledge and work in cross-functional teams with lots of other people right. to define and solve problems. And what I discovered was that engineering, like, and, and, and accreditation is very valuable, so not against accreditation. There'd be an accreditation body that accredits engineering degrees dictates a narrow scope and so the uh-huh. universities if they want to have something that's marketable which means it's accredited by their accreditation body for engineering they're they're tied to what it is that it is dictated oh, no. that's something i'll tackle later in my career but i feel and i, I have a friend who who just uh, left as ceo of the accreditation body for business schools but i really enjoyed you know my friendship with her because i i did her, her, um her name's Karen Beck Dudley, and she was actually the dean of the business school for a while at santa Clara but I, I I enjoyed being able to interact with her in that position as a friend to help her see you know as a hiring manager what I need what because what I need i don't i am not assuming I'll be able to get based on somebody's degree it it's a multiple multitude of character values aptitudes mm. uh, and tendencies sure. that that really uh, can a company a degree yeah, yeah. Uh, does tell you things but there aren't specific degrees for this field so this field is intensely multidisciplinary um and i think you're you're well aware of that um and yeah, so you've got yeah. to have literacy across the clinical domain the te- technical domain which there's many technical domains of you know infrastructure applications cyber security uh, and, and then you have the project management and so there's a lot of different domains and we just are education is very siloed and so we have to figure out how how do we integrate people that have had very siloed educations and and really put them in a system and make the system run and help them to be productive and develop in that system and 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 i haven't and i'm talking to some people about stuff from advanced degrees they can use our books because we have two books now um and so just like a, a little sidebar we do have a hundred of the top people in the industry that are from IT, informatics, cybersecurity, medicine, hospital administration, human capital, all working together on these thematic books. We've got mobile medicine. We have advanced health technology. They're both still bestsellers. Um, you know, in their third 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 year of doing this, um, and at first specifically for medical informatics, um, and so those books, you know, can be used to help um, you know design what would be degrees of the future.
0: Yeah, you know, it, it, what's interesting to me is uh, the the problem that you're describing in, uh, uh, in engineering accreditation and uh, the uh, singular focus on a narrow uh, interpretation of that field is so similar to what we find in healthcare, right? I mean, uh, your endocrinologist knows endocrinology very, very well. Uh, but if they can't work with the nephrologist and the cardiologist and so on and so forth, it's, a, it's it's a reflection of the same kind of problem of disintegration, you know, in the pursuit of managing complexity. Uh, you know, in in discussions with others, we've talked about how do you manage complexity, and the yeah. uh, the uh, there are a number of ways to manage it. One of them is differentiation, right? Uh, if it gets too complex so that you can't hold all of it in one bucket, uh, you you. Uh, you you cordon off endocrinology from general no. medicine so that you can become an expert yeah. in one narrow area, and then bringing those back together is the challenge. And how do you see that uh, happening in in academics, and how do you see that happening in healthcare?
1: Um. So yeah. So I'm an equal opportunity terrorizer. So I also terrorize <laughs> medical education leadership in addition to engineering leadership. So yep, um, yeah. The most actionable thing that I think would help your listener is um. Along a, a few dimensions. The uh, first is that we do not live in isolation. Uh, you know the whole idea that no man is an island. Um, and so one of the the biggest challenges I think we've had in healthcare is that we really have two camps. Uh, you know um, of of sort of technology uh, personalities okay. saying that they're work- transforming the system. And I don't don't know how much you've been following the Ocean Gate saga. Hey Connectors, this is Alden from the Editing Bay. I just wanted to clarify, depending on when you're watching this, Ocean Gate was an event in which the CEO of a company called Ocean Gate named Stockton Rush built an experimental submarine that was sort of denounced by all regulatory bodies, took several people down to take a tour of the Titanic in his submarine called Titan. The submarine failed and all of the people on board lost their lives. So that is what she is referring to. Let's get back
0: to the show.
1: But I, as someone as a STEM person, I jumped all over it because it just resonated um, so much. And and one of, so one of the things I also do is I'm co-chair of Trust for the IEEE Standard, uh, which is a joint venture with Underwriter Labs, and it's about building trustworthy, safe, reliable technology uh, for healthcare. Mm. And, and so I, The idea of OceanGate was that you can kind of move fast and break things. It, and, and and what seemed appeared to me, you know, someone who has experience uh, with different engineering methods, that it um looks very foolish, honestly. And and I love yeah. the idea so Mariana Trench is the deepest trench, you know, off the Pacific coast in the whole, you know, world. Yep. And then there's successive levels that are also daunting, one being the Titanic level. Uh, and then you know you get successive levels near the surface of the ocean. So my idea about OceanGate, uh, okay. everybody knows in, in recent, from the recent news, was that it was not built to withstand the pressure. And so it's, it's very analogous for us at Metagram because nope. web and stationary applications also do not stand up to mobility pressure at hospitals, which is why you, you'll notice none of your friends use much for mobile apps in the hospital. Um, even though they probably like to, because the ones they're given don't work for them. Yeah. And the reason why OceanGate was so interesting and compelling is because, again, people are trying to take, you know, these fast methods and bring them to a totally inappropriate use case. Now, I'm not saying that OceanGate shouldn't have been able to exist or do what they wanted to do, but I'm saying that they should have... So the equivalent of IEEE, but for the oceanic, you know, market had written them a letter saying, you know, you didn't do... Yeah. What you're supposed to do in terms of these different tests and certifications, and so to me, they could have done what they did, but they should have been relegated to a lake. Maybe <laughs> <You
0: know? laughs> <And laughs> you know, we'd that, be talking about not, Lake Gate instead, I guess. That,
1: <laughs> right, but the Lake Gate instead yeah. of like you know trying to take that to the Titanic level. And I just yeah. when I talk about you know Ocean Gate, the contrast to Ocean Gate is the Deep Sea Challenger. So I'm a huge fan of James Cameron, who was the um, director is still living the director of the Titanic and several other movies. Um, but he does take a very, you know, thoughtful, intelligent approach and... to the way that he built the Deep Sea Challenger to do those expeditions for the Titanic. And when you look at it, I mean OceanGate looks like a toy compared to the yeah. Deep Sea Challenger. And, and so the Deep Sea Challenger is not just a technical engineering, it's all it's a systems engineering a solution oh. to a complex system problem there is a lot that, that 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 went into engineering that's worse as a system other than just the, the hard technical engineering itself yeah. so what i'm i'm looking to do is you know you've got to understand that there's a lot of noise makers that have an ocean gate mentality of moving fast and breaking things they haven't done much in healthcare as you know besides cradle points and issue lots of press releases yeah. Yeah. and so with metagram and what we're working to do, we really needed to have all the people that that have to work on the problem, you know, come up with you know the, the solution of, of the system. Let's
0: let's get into it. Let's get into Metagram. Uh, where you got the notion, how it was formed, and what you're trying to do in healthcare.
1: Yeah. No. Thank you so much. So um, it uh, so we're in the business of driving safety, efficiency, and profitability uh, with data and AI informed virtual mobile clinical programs. Um, and so I think if you talk to any of your friends who are practicing, you know, in hospitals or clinics, they'll report that none of the mobile apps they have were designed for the unique challenges. And, and when you trip, go into a hospital with your phone, I think like one of my beloved uh, colleagues, Matt Partridge, says that doctors are in airplane mode all the time. Yeah. And so there's a technical component of solving um, the technical problem. Um, but the mission is also it has to be more than a technical solution and that it's about getting the right data to the right person at the right time. Um and, and at the same time, like healthcare is under extraordinary attack from a cybersecurity standpoint. Yeah. And it's a, a cool national infrastructure industry. So that also has to be done securely, you know, which also, you know, that, that doesn't fit in with the whole ocean gate mentality, you know, either. Yeah. Designing the the system and the Deployment and the implementation the integration along with the actual technical solution is the reason why we put this consortium together, because there's a lot of things that a lot of people, important people, um, really respected people agreed with our approach to the, to the solution. Um, but at the same time, as you know, probably as well as anybody like you have to have a buy-in basically from various stakeholders to be successful in this. Market, right? I mean, have you ever heard of organic, random like product market fit from outside of the industry, like erupting naturally in healthcare?
0: Yeah, well, fair point. Fair point. Let me let me let me ask you, though, to back up a step for those of us that are a little slower and and, and describe exactly what Metagram is bringing to the market that. the parts that have been there before and the parts that haven't. What is Metagram doing specifically? Yeah,
1: so thank you for that. So if you think about like a, a medical grade WhatsApp, because, you know, any of your friends who are physicians or even you, you'll have apps that have been designated to you if you're, I'm not sure if you're on medical staff or any of your, your local hospitals, but those don't work most of the time. I mean, and the reports that I get from a lot of physicians are about 70% of the time, they don't work. And so- so, our, they,
0: so they go back to using their uh, their messaging app to snap pictures of interesting cases to share with their colleagues.
1: Exactly, and 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 also they try to mask the patient information because they know it's, you know, not, not legal or- HIPAA or, or
0: compliant, yeah. My
1: vision of healthcare is we get trustworthy, fast, safe teamwork, which we don't have right now it's cause, because yeah. people, physicians like Art are just waiting to get information from a colleague that they need, like if your family member lands in the ED and they're just the that ED doctor cannot make a determination themselves, they need to have inputs and and feedback and test interpretations from colleagues. And so many of that time, they're waiting, and 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 it's maybe something's been sent, that the system doesn't send it yeah. for maybe hours. Sometimes it's even been the next day because those the fewer systems are not built for service you know, for guaranteed service or, or reliability or timeliness. Yeah. Because yeah. they're built to be, free. you know, so this leading cause of preventable death is, is really a, a worldwide challenge. Yeah. That's what we're looking to, to tackle.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Very, very interesting. And, and uh, who are your customers today? Are they, are you out there in the market now uh, delivering service?
1: Yeah. So we're, we're ramping up to get into the market. We have, we're on version three. Uh, so we've had a, uh, Version one, version two, which were geared to smaller clinics.
0: Right, right.
1: We uh, published um, in peer-reviewed research in the Journal of Hospital Medicine. Yeah. And it had a high NPS. So there's two levels of managing it. There's the executive level. Right. Where you, you should have a 360 visibility between uh, you and your your team and the team that you're working with. And then there is a specialist or the subject matter expert visibility. And so one of the things that I have to do is because a lot of software developers aren't used to healthcare, but you still need their skills is that I also have to shield them from some of the complexity. And so when you're talking about breaking things out, you know, there's the device management issue. Um, there is the software application itself, and then there's the deployment and integration, right, with the with the user and and, and with the enterprise. So we have one of the preeminent um, organizational psychologists of our generation. Her name's Karen John Madsen. Yeah, so she's our head of talent, and so we have a skills and competency based uh, approach to everything. Uh, and so um, we, there's two, basically two main levers for, for solving, I think, complexity, going back to answering a question yeah. around that. And first it's diagnosing the situation correctly. Yes. Um, is this the Ariana trench or is this the Titanic level? And then if it is the Titanic level, what are all the skills and competencies that have to be in place? Now we, we have had 49 cross-functional projects with a hundred of the top people in the industry with these books, because the whole purpose of them is to drive shared mental models with leaders in the industry so that we could get you know, real work done. Uh, and so when we reverse engineered that, we reverse engineered it into a hundred skills and competencies that you need to either drive or account for, you know, no one's perfect, no one person's perfect and no team is perfect, but you do need to have a good inventory and a good target around all these skills and competencies or you're not gonna be successful. And I, and I think one of the things I'm grateful for is that we have um, you know gotten a lot of um, wonderful opportunities uh, and built a lot of relationships from the books because yeah. the executives in the industry understand how hard they are because they're highly regulated um, these graduate level um, textbooks. Yeah. So skills and competencies. And then the other thing that I posted the other day was what's your problem-solving approach? And so one of the things that I I was joking with Art, who's has Chief Medical Officer for two health systems, but I said, you know, the, one of the probably biggest problems in healthcare is that lean, as wonderful and important as it is, if you apply lean to chaos, you're just creating more noise. That doesn't uh, um, solve anything. You can apply lean to known things like manufacturing, where you know the inputs and the outputs, but when you have multiple stakeholders, and you have unknowns. You can't apply lean. You have to apply design thinking. So there's a spectrum of problem solving between known, repeatable, simple problems, if starting with quality improvement, uh, uh, continuous improvement, and then lean, and then you know from the spectrum up from there, including agile, kanban, um, at, you know, scrum, and then design thinking. You know, from simplicity to chaos. So I think. Honestly, the the of so many things we can solve in healthcare with ex- exceptional management, the yeah. man- diagnosing the problem and applying the skills, competencies, and methodology to that problem. That that is what I think is uh, will take us where we need to
0: go. Uh, when you say you know you can't apply it lean to chaos, I mean one of the things that I'm reminded of is the uh, the story of Alan Morris at Intermountain Health, and uh, this goes back to the '80s actually, and there was a Uh, ARDS, which is a a lung disease, an end-stage lung disease that uh, leads to a pretty high mortality, adult respiratory distress syndrome. It's what a lot of people died of uh, in COVID-19. and Mortality was very, very high at the time. And in the 80s, there was an Italian study that came out that showed that if you applied this protocol that included placing uh, uh, severely impacted patients on essentially a heart-lung machine... They were able to show a dramatic reduction in mortality. Well, Alan Morris at Intermountain Health saw this and he was smart enough to think back to first principles and say, compared to what? Exactly. And it was, quote, usual practice. Well, usual practice is chaos. You know, they documented in their own facility that there's, you know, 100, 200, 300% variation, not only between different doctors with the same information, but the same doctor on a different day. <laughs> and so what they did is they began to standardize the ventilator protocol based on uh, 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 you know, collaborating with all the docs and saying, hey, do, can we agree on what we, you would do with this and this and this? And they went through this painstaking job of standardizing. And at the end of the project, they ultimately, uh, you know, it took a while to get adoption. And, and every time somebody deviated from it, they'd ask the question, is the doctor wrong and we need to educate them? Is the protocol wrong, and the doctor is educating us, or is this a an exception? You're going to have those that the protocol's right; it should be applied, but the doctor was smart enough to accept this function here right now. And so, uh, with that process, they eventually got 80 plus percent adoption. And what they found was simply by standardizing the approach, the mortality dropped exactly the same as amount as using this expensive machine. That caught my attention, and it's. It's, you know, it's, it's what you're saying, unless you have a baseline against which to compare, you can't improve.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think it's just that we're saying the same thing and that it's like, you have to understand what you're, what are you solving?
0: Yeah. And first principles is critically important there and understanding that, yes, usual practice is not a thing, you know, it is, it is chaotic. And if you compare against that, you're never going to get anywhere because anything you do almost will be better than that. <laughs> Now, the other thing that I'm thinking, Sherry, is uh, uh, I don't I don't know if you've, uh, uh, and this maybe is, is taking a little bit of a tangent, but I don't know if you are familiar with Ian McGillcrest and uh, The Master and His Emissary, uh, that book that's about the right versus left brain function and the evolution of societies. And as societies get more and more complex, they're more and more leaning towards left brain type functions, which is you know, uh, fact-based manipulate the world. This is how I manipulate my environment. And the right brain tends to be context, relationship, yeah, no. big picture of what's going on. Yeah, yeah. So the right brain is 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 the should be the boss, and the left brain serves the boss. But we've gotten that upside I down totally agree. Uh, and gone too far down. And that, to me, when you st- start talking about the differentiation and that results in fragmentation we've lost our way you know the big picture is what's important and what i hear you saying is i'm i'm not only trying to be rigorous in the design and make sure i go back to first principles to make this work and work safely and work reliably uh, but i'm also uh, cognizant of the psychological environment in which it needs to be deployed and the big picture of what I'm trying to do in healthcare. Is that a, a fair description of what you're trying to accomplish? It's a
1: very generous description, but it, it resonates deeply, and I remember you talking about that uh, at your the great talk that you gave at AI Med. Oh, well, thank you. And I, I remember thinking, I wish I could have a snapshot of everybody's face because based on their reaction then I'll know if I want to be friends with them and work with them. or <laughs> That's <laughs> a test, <laughs> I mean, just, right?
0: Yeah, just the one
1: Wonderful, but you no, know, I, I I totally I totally agree with that, and I, I just want to um, encourage everybody that you know, and including you, to continue on this path, this human centered path. You have you're not alone. Um, the Brits are very uh, very big on, on that, and it drives a lot of what they do in terms of policy and public health. Yep. And I feel that we have an opportunity, especially with the conversation around generative AI, to really assert a human centered agenda especially in medicine. Yeah. And and that, that needs to be asserted because what you're talking about, this left brain dominance. I know personally, I grew up in Silicon Valley and I know people that I I that I believe have it have it backwards. Yeah. And and they're not if they were based in facts, that would be great. Um, but that, but they're, they're, actually a lot of it is is hypes, hype and vibes, which doesn't work in medicine because medicine is still highly governed by medical ethics. And so what we're working to do at Metagram, besides establishing and asserting our philosophy, is also really build this consortium around, you know, highly trusted, respected players who believe in truth and and that want to use that truth to help improve human life, to save human life and make human lives better. And that is a significant departure from the majority of the tech industry, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. I, I try to encourage people, listeners, our, our friends to own that identity and to work together. We, I think, have a chance to make that really, you know, more of a governance philosophy in healthcare because that's the only thing that's going to work. If you, if you just look, again, first principles, patient literacy is only 12% in the only peer-reviewed yeah. uh, paper that, that reports on that. And so the, the whole dream that pe- this left brain dream that people have that patients will be democratized to be able to do their own healthcare, that is a pipe Yeah. not with where patients are right now. I'm not saying it's not a worthwhile goal sometime in some decades, but today they still rely on physicians and trust the physicians. So you cannot disempower and disintermediate and disenfranchise a physician when your patients are only 12% literate. It just makes yeah. zero sense. that's a mismatch again. It's Oceangate trying to go to the Mariana Trench, but Oceangate should be in the lake. Yeah, if Oceangate wants to be in the lake and help people manage their allergies and things so that they can do that are simple on their own, that's fine. And so that that's what our people that we know need to do. We need to work on classifying when people with their 12% literacy can do things themselves, but then everything else, we need to help the physicians systematize so that they can play that their role as the trusted advisor. and we need to protect that. That's a very, I think, sacred position and relationship between them and and the patient needs to be protected,
0: yeah. and I think uh, uh, we need to reinfuse that even more into medical education because I you know it's not unusual now, and I know from personal experience if if you're having some kind of procedure, uh, that you might be in the hospital for two, three days. Never meet the person that's actually going to be doing the procedure. And that, to me, uh, is not a good way to develop trust. You know, human beings have to spend time together in order to develop trust. And the technology should be serving that relationship, not the other way around.
1: Exactly. But, but we can't just have this idea. We have to do something about it, right? We have to work together. And you know, in these working groups you know we have to write about it and we have to act on it
0: sherry I, you know you say that you're the ceo of metagram and i believe you but you're talking about something much larger when you add in your philosophy around how technology technology should be used and and the publications that you're offering to uh, uh, forward your philosophy on how technology should be developed used deployed uh, it's a much bigger thing that you're taking on here than than Metagram, isn't it?
1: Well, I see Metagram as as you know, a small early stage entity right now, but that's not what it's meant to be. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's, meant, yeah. it's meant to you know become a much larger, uh, formidable you know organization. You know, when when that time um, and and a lot of that has to do with you know hardening and scaling the practices that 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 I'm talking about here, and so I, I do believe. Um, and and the, so this is a thing, too, is that there is something as a medical grade software company. I don't think it's truly been invented yet. I think it's something we're ah, working to find. I
0: like that. I like that. Yeah.
1: It's very hard to do with um, I was talking to somebody part of a large physician group and they've disbanded all of their sort of um, tech relationships because there was just too much misalignment between them and the technology industry. And, and so a lot of us know that I work on standards with, we just believe that when you, that the things that can and should be done with technology to scale it and to make it more efficient, to make it more convenient are need to be done. Those are worthwhile goals, but it's people are thinking about it backwards because when you get into a patient's home, for example, they have much less security, much less infrastructure, a lot less people, and so yeah. you actually can't have consumer-grade technology in that environment. You actually have to hi- have a higher grade of technology in that environment, and that doesn't yeah. go well with propaganda. But that's just right. And so yeah. I, I do believe that someday, not just MetaGram, but also you know other friends that we have that we align with will be building what are considered these medical grade technology companies. And it'll be something that, that's a well understood concept. That's what I think will happen.
0: Sherry, you have been uh, extremely generous with your time. I do have one more question for you though that I'd, uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on. And that is, um, if there were one thing uh, today that, that we could do to improve the chances that we get to a healthcare system that truly is equitable uh, for all, what would that be?
1: So, well, I think what it, all the work that we've done, um that in terms of providing a resource, you know, to the industry, to leaders, to standards, to certifications, to policymakers, is that the invitation for your um, audience that I'd like to make is that if they self-identify as being passionate about the, a truthful, practical way of moving healthcare IT uh, technology forward and um, that uh, just a shameless um, plug for both mobile medicine and advanced health technology and um, because that's what they were built for. They were built for people who are tr- truly have an interest in understanding at a detailed level what needs to be done um, to drive the field forward. And, and they're available on Routledge, Taylor, Francis, you know, Amazon, everywhere fine books are sold. And then also um, I love to have people um, not just agree with me, but also debate with me um, and so I do post on LinkedIn um, daily and, and Twitter um, a lot. And so people want to see what I'm saying, which I say something most days. Um, I've got a bell, there's a bell on the, on the banner of my profile. And I, I extensively discuss everything that we've talked about on a regular basis, because again, this industry is, is a multi-stakeholder industry. And so we need to be having a conversation like we are right now um as well as, you know, in the conference environment, but also online. That's just the, the nature of the world we live in. So that that would be my my ask and offer to the audience.
0: Absolutely appreciate that, Sherry. You, you've you've uh, uh, I, I gotta tell you, I, you are doing some wonderful stuff. You're by nature a connector. It comes across big time and in, in all of my interactions that I've had with you. Uh, and I really appreciate you, and I'm glad there's people like you in healthcare. And and uh, uh, with that, uh, uh, I want to thank you so much for being on the show, and say so. Well,
1: it's been it's been an honor. Thank you for having me. Okay,
0: yeah. bye bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Groves Connection, your connection to the inside story on healthcare, featuring in-depth interviews with those who know. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, give us a five-star review to keep the connection going, and hit the subscribe button to be sure you never miss a beat. The Groves Connection is produced by Dr. Robert Groves. Original music, editing, and creative direction provided by Alden Groves. Production support, content guidance, courtesy of Janae Sharp and Elizabeth Barrett. Thank you for listening. The professional ideas and opinions expressed in this podcast are mine and do not reflect those of any current or past employers. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time on The Groves Connection.